Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman, and I'm going to get into the weeds with the story behind the song on Consequence. Welcome, listeners, to the story behind the song. In this very special bonus Halloween episode, which is destined to become a perennial classic, I speak with Jack Skellington himself true renaissance man Danny Elfman. Elfman has done it all for nearly 50 years. Frontman for Oingo Boingo, iconoclastic visualist whose Coachella set was one for the ages, and composer of more than 100 film scores. Together with his career-long collaborator and soulmate in Beauty and Darkness, Tim Burton, Elfman reimagined both sound and visual landscapes in film. Edward Scissorhands is just one of their children, always unconventional, always out of place, always misunderstood, and always slightly dangerous because of it. Either way, the man, the body of work, is genius. And also, all a bit mad. If ever there were a day meant for Elfman, that would be today, Halloween. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with mad, mystical, musical alchemist, Danny Elfman. First of all, Danny, you've been nominated four times for Academy Awards. You've written over 100 film scores, um, including one of my favorites of all time in Edward Scissorhands. The, when she's spinning around, the snowflakes are coming. It makes everybody in my family cry. It's, it's so stunningly beautiful. Um, multiple Grammy and Emmy Awards. Co the Coachella set, and I go to Coachella every year for like 15, 16 years. Coachella set is still the talk of the town months and months and months later. It's great to have you on. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Of course. Um, so Danny, take us through what led you to being this young kid, obviously a love for movies, and that led you together with your brother into creation of Oingo Boingo. So can you take us into that? I was born in Los Angeles, barely three miles from where I'm sitting right now, and I've never lived anywhere else. Uh, it's crazy because I never went away to college or, or anything. And so I've just always lived here. You're correct by saying that I grew up on movies. I was a horror movie fanatic as a child. Uh, I was interested in possibly getting into film when I entered high school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but music wasn't in on my agenda at all. Yeah. Wasn't there a story that you were n not in the orchestra or kicked out of the orchestra or something, something? No, that was at elementary school. I tried out for the elementary school orchestra and I was simply, my mother was told no propensity for music. <laughs> well, okay. So we have to track down that, that music teacher. <laughs> Big mistake. And Big mistake. Yeah, it all worked out. 
So I, I didn't do music lessons or play any instruments as a kid. And when I entered high school, I just happened to fall in. It was a new school because we had moved uh, between middle school and high school. And I had to make new friends. And so these new friends happened to be a number of musicians and artists. And it just shifted my, my kind of perspective. Because suddenly it's like, oh, I'm like the only one who doesn't play an instrument and it's too late for me. I'm already 16, 17, and you know, everybody else has been playing since they were six or seven. Yeah. And so I figured my ship has sailed. That's not going to happen. Uh, but when I was 18, I decided to uh, pick up a, a violin because I became a fan of uh, 1930s jazz, really big fan uh, when I was in high school. And I was infatuated with this uh, artist named Django Reinhardt that was a jazz guitarist mm. uh, in Paris in the thirties. And he had a gypsy fiddler player named Stefan Grappelli. And it was like, Oh yeah, I would love to be able to do that. So my friend Leon and myself went to high school with, we uh, planned a trip around the world after high school. And we spent a year planning this carefully crafted trip all fell to pieces once we got out of the country. But uh, long story short is I had this fiddle that I'd been playing for about five months. I get to Paris en route to Africa, actually, um, to visit my brother, who's playing with a musical theatrical troupe called Le Grand Magic Circus. He was a conga player. Hmm. And the director heard me practicing one day, and he says, hey, why don't you come play with us? And I'm going, I don't know. He says, yeah, you're good enough. And uh, I went on tour with the Le Grand Magic Circus around France. I got my first taste of performing. But as a fiddler. As a fiddler, yeah. And and it's not like it's easy to pick up a a fiddle and learn how to play a fiddle. So it, it's that alone in five months to have been able to do that kind of tells you a lot about your innate musicality. Well, on the other hand, I can't say that I was really good either. Um, no. You know, I was just suitable. I had a good ear and I was able to pick yeah. up on tunes. And so I acted as a violinist, just picking up tunes, accompanying this ragtag kind of musical stuff. And then I went and spent a year traveling with Leon through West Africa uh, on a trip. Totally the, not what we had planned. Um, mm. Took a right turn instead of a left turn. Uh, we were supposed to go through North Africa over to India, Asia and work our way back to Los Angeles. Instead, we started in the Sahara, Sahara, in a country called Mauritania, and decided to go south towards, uh, I was aiming for a country called Mali in mm. West Africa, and I suddenly became really interested in that. And that began this long trip through West Africa, Central Africa, over finally to East Africa, uh, at which point I came home quite sick uh, with hepatitis, and I'd had malaria a few times. And my brother showed up the day after I got home. He goes, it's okay. You can rest for a day or two. Then you can start rehearsals with us. <laughs> <laughs> There's and your understanding he, brother for you. He started while I was gone. He came back from Paris and started his own troupe called the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. And it was kind of modeled after Le Grand Magic Circus, but, uh, um, but crazier, but like real raunchy street music fire breathing burlesque i had to learn to breathe fire and and i joined them and we played only the streets for years passing the hat and doing these crazy gorilla shows like 
you know, there'd be a movie line that we would just show up eight, nine, 10 of us and do this crazy 20 minute show. And really quickly, we had a time before the police could get there. We'd do the show, do the fire breathing, play these drums, these crazy drums, pass the hat, get our money and, and get out of there fast before we got arrested. And so that was my life in my uh, early 20s. And, That's pretty uh, amazing. Uh, what an amazing. Um, my poor parents, though. Well, I was going to ask you, what did you, <laughs> what did your parents think about all this? My parents were both school teachers. So they were like, okay, honey, you're going to take a year off now to do this little crazy thing of yours. Then you're going to go to college, right? Yeah, mom. Sure. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And then after the second year, you are going back to college. Absolutely, mom. I promise. Just going to do this a little more. By the third year, she's like, you're not going back to college, are you? I said, no. How do you? How did that trip to Africa change you? Well, it changed everything because I think what I really wanted was something to really shake me out of my shell, my bubble. You know, growing up a white middle class American suburbia, which is what I was. Yeah. It was a very normal middle class suburban life that I lived, and. I just had a feeling that I needed to shake it up. And that's why when I got to Africa, I just decided to just keep going. I was, first off, I really loved the music. I really loved the people I was meeting. And it was all so different and so unique to me that I just wanted to go further and further. And so that became the entire year. And uh, I also, I sent home a lot of percussion. You, you can probably see a little bit behind me. I have a huge... Uh, collection of percussion instruments. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 and yeah. that all yeah. started with uh, the West African instruments that I sent home. And uh, so when I got back to America, now I was like playing all kinds of percussion. I was playing the violin, playing the fiddle, and I picked up trombone. And um, now the Mystic Knights began to develop. And it went from like eight, nine pieces into 12 pieces where everybody had to play multi instruments. So we could be an all string ensemble with string instruments or all brass or all percussion. And we built our own ensembles of, of percussion, crazy percussion ensembles. And then we started doing multimedia and film clips and things playing live. And it was a real complicated show. <laughs> and um, what was your mindset, Dan, Danny, what was your mindset at the time? So this you're this young guy who comes back and you're involved in this show with your brother that's that is um, uh, a little bit all over the place in a very creative way. But did you have a some anything in your mind of okay, I'm I'm moving toward this or no? Was it just you were in the moment and just 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 doing your thing? Yeah, I was just doing my thing, and it was just get better, get better, get better. You know, and uh, I started writing music for them, and eventually I learned to notate what I was writing, I had to teach myself to write it down because um, it, it started getting too complicated just to try to teach, you know, by showing parts and doing it that way. So I taught myself to write. And we did a lot of early jazz, which I still loved. And so it was actually transcribing Duke Ellington, like 1933 Duke Ellington big band arrangements is how I learned to transcribe music. And that was great training for my ear in hindsight, it was, it was fantastic. So I did that for about eight years and my brother went off and 
uh, became a film director. So now the, the Mystic Nights was left to me for about three years to just mm. try to turn it into a better musical troupe was my goal. And then I lived in the 30s. It's hard to explain in my head. I didn't listen to any contemporary music. This is in the 70s. I didn't know who was playing. I didn't know who was popular. I didn't know. I, in my mind, I lived in 1935 in Harlem. <laughs> and I, you know, and mentally, it's like I was living at the Cotton Club in Harlem in 1935, listening to music. And um, suddenly, late 70s, I hear this ska music out of England. Uh, madness, special selector. And all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, this kind of reminds me of the music I heard in Africa uh, a little bit, but faster, more energetic. And I said, I want to start a ska band. And so I just bailed on the Mystic Nights and the complexity of that whole show. And suddenly the idea of being in a band with just guitar, bass, drums, we could set up quick anywhere and not be tied to projectors and big backdrops and costumes and all that stuff. And so I started Boingo Boingo. Uh, it's complicated because I didn't change the name. You know, there was a, we were almost called you, Well, you Nine. just shortened it. You shortened it. We shortened it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we spent a couple of months going through different names and we ended up as, eh, just stay Oingo Boingo. That began the first incarnation of Oingo Boingo as a rock band. Uh, late 70s, and that just kind of grew. And 1985, we're getting pretty popular in Los Angeles and the West Coast. And um, Tim Burton shows up with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. 1985 was a really big year because it was the, you know, Dead Man's Party and that that album came yeah. out, which was uh, probably our most popular album for uh, Oingo Boingo. And my first year to get my first film score, and my daughter, Molly, was born. Wow. So amazing. It was a big year. Yeah, no, yeah. That is a big year. So yeah. congratulations on your daughter, obviously. <laughs> For Tim Burton, how does that happen? Because you were Oingo Boingo and your music was very popular. Um, but how did Tim and Burton, and he was an early filmmaker at that time. He was but how, not how even an early happen? filmmaker. He was an animator who had worked at Disney. Right. He'd done a couple of short films himself. Uh, there's a short film version of Frank and Weenie that he did that I saw. That was like, you know, maybe like 20 minutes long that he, he shot himself. Really good, by the way. He was an animator who was getting his shot in his first uh, feature-length film. I don't know what made him, you know, I, I've asked him, I said, why did he think I could do it? And he goes, I don't know, just I, your band, I used to see your band and I just thought you can do it. But at the same time, Paul Rubens plays Pee Wee Herman, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman. He was a fan of this film my brother made called Forbidden Zone. And in Forbidden Zone, I had done music. This was like four or five years earlier, but six years earlier. But he remembered and made a note. Whoever did that music to Forbidden Zone, I got to remember who that is. So when it came time to look for a composer for Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Paul and Tim, they both came up with my name. You know, Paul through the Forbidden Zone and Tim through Oingo Boingo. Just independently. You know what? I can't say exactly, though, because I don't really know what the discussions yeah. were other than I ended up somehow on both of their lists. And Tim never it's... really explained why he thought that I had the ability to do a film score, because I didn't at that moment. But 
you know, he called me in, I met him and we connected. We grew up on the same horror films and the same stuff. And, you know, we both grew up in Los Angeles and we both seemed like we were probably weird kids and connected on that level too. What would it have been like being a fly on the wall in that first meeting with these you know, two it really, great minds? Yeah, it was a very simple meeting. Um, we talked about our past, and I learned that his idol was uh, the, the horror actor Vincent Price, and mine was the horror actor Peter Lorre. And Vincent Price and Peter Lorre often interacted in the, these uh, horror movies that Roger Corman produced in the 60s. So there was a connection, and then he showed me some of the film. And I saw the beginning with the bicycle race and the whole thing. And I just thought, there's something kind of European about this. It doesn't feel like an American comedy. I went home and I just had this piece of music in my head. So I made a demo. I had a four-track tape player at that time. And uh, I made a four-track demo of all these parts. And I made a cassette tape. And I sent him the cassette. And I didn't think any more about it. I just figured it would get you know tossed. And a week later, I get a call saying, you got the job. And I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And for a moment, I almost said no. And I told my manager, I said, eh, call him, tell him, forget it. And he said, why? He says, I don't, I don't know how to do this. And he goes, you call him and tell him. I just put this deal together. You call him and tell him you don't want to do it. And I looked at the phone and thought about it and fortunately i never picked up the phone yeah yeah i mean you know it was one great thing of growing up coming up in that era in the early, late 70s early 80s i had a total attitude of i don't give a fuck and uh that your entire life as a ch as, as a child no also? as a, as a young man no as a child mm -hmm. i was extremely shy and i really gave a fuck about everything i i was constantly trying to hide and didn't like myself. You know, I was one of those kind of kids. But as an adult, coming up with Oingo Boingo, even though we weren't a punk band, there was the attitude of everybody hates us. Good. Fuck you. I mean, that literally was how we looked at the world because you know, we got terrible reviews. And I found that I love that. It's like, yeah, go on. You know, it's like an L.A. critic once said, dance music for kids who can't dance and i thought yeah that's great i love <laughs> that, that that is great that's great <laughs> and um so when i real thought about doing the score i said who cares i'm just gonna do it for me and i'll have the experience and try to hopefully do something that tim enjoys and if the studio throws it out they throw it out i really don't give a shit and so i did a score that i played for tim and tim was into it and it was like, great, let's just keep going and do this. And I really learned a lot about scoring on that first film, uh, how to find hit points and how to synchronize the music to the image. And, and my first session for Pee Wee was this bicycle race. Uh, hearing the orchestra play that piece was a big moment for me because it's like I'd never been in front of an orchestra before. And it was like, wow, this is very cool it kind of got under my skin so the fact that they didn't throw the score out 
already amazed me. Suddenly, I had this career because, you know, it was a lucky break. It was at a time when people didn't quite know what to do with comedy, music, and films. And yeah. I just approached it completely from less field. And suddenly, I start getting a million calls for every quirky comedy made. It's like, oh, my God, I'm the quirky comedy guy. It's like, <laughs> whatever. Do you believe that your travels influence that? No, I think more just watching movies, you know, yeah, just, just kind of seeing movies. like, yeah, weird comedy films from the 50s and 60s and, you know, uh, from Europe. And uh, and also I was, became a big fan of the Italian composer Nino Rota, who did Fellini's mm -hmm. films. And there was a strong Nino Rota influence in the theme I wrote for Tim that got me into Pee-Wee's Big Adventure. It was very much inspired by Nino Rota. Gotcha. When you changed and you had your first score opportunity and you handed it in, you didn't think it was going, you know, you, you didn't know what was going to happen with it. No. Were you ever intimidated by any of this? No, I just felt like I did what I did. I like it. Tim likes yeah. it. Warner Brothers will no doubt throw it out. And that's that. It's an experience, <laughs> right. you know, and they didn't right. throw it right. out. I was, I couldn't believe it, but um, it, it was just fun. I, I, I realized how much I love embracing something that I don't know anything about. Um, you know, switching from 1930s music to being in a rock band, switching from being in a rock band to writing orchestral music, which ironically took me back to what I taught myself in the Mystic Nights, how to write and put together these charts, um, which I thought was a waste of time when I started Oingo Boingo. But I realized later I couldn't have done Pingu's Big Adventure had I not done all that music transcription that I did with the Mystic Knights. So yeah. it all kind of came full circle. Well, it's amazing. Uh, the, the, a few things about all of that. You didn't have any formal music training. You started late in music. Um, and yet, look at all this. So for everybody out there who's listening and watching, that gives you hope that it does, you're, you, you can do things in the non-linear way. So that's one thing. And then you were talking about the fact that you came very close to rejecting that opportunity with Tim, that first yeah, one. Yeah, I, I had a, sensi a sensible moment for a moment of like, shouldn't be doing this. And right. then fortunately I was seized by, so what, who cares? You know, it's it's pretty incredible because had that not happened, that who cares-ness, then your life would have taken a different path. It would Definitely. be- yeah, and so a whole different path. Now that I've got yeah, one hundred and ten film scores later, it would have been a very different path. Yeah, no question. How would you describe to everybody out there the process in if you can even describe it, like how you approach different types of mediums and genres? My attitude is keep it all very separate. Uh, when I started scoring, I didn't want it to sound anything like Oingo Boingo which sounded nothing like the Mystic Knights. You know, it's like when you do something new, abandon everything else up to that point and just let it go. Let hmm. just, you know, you just start all over again. Take it down to zero. It's like, I'm doing a score. Uh, I want to be influenced not by pop music. I don't want it to sound like a pop score. I want it mm -hmm. to sound like film music. So I should be influenced by film composers that I grew up on. And that's how I approached right. it. So I looked to my sources, not to rock or pop or jazz, which I'd grown up on, but earlier the film music that was a part of my life also. Right. right. What would you say that your proudest accomplishment is amongst your many scores or your favorite moments from your scores? 
there's, you know, a very special for sure, the early Tim Burton movies where there was no temp music, there was no model for them. And I didn't realize in hindsight how rare, because now it's impossible. You never get a movie where there's no temporary music put in. There's no model for the kind of score. But the common yeah. denominator with Pee Wee, with Beetlejuice, with Batman, with Nightmare Before Christmas, and Edward Scissorhands, those five movies, is there was no model. Nothing of like, say, what's, our, what's the sound of this movie? You know, we'd approach them all. It's like, no idea. And now yeah. in hindsight, I go, God, what a... What a blessing that was. So there's moments on all of those, you know, I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas will always be very, very special to me because, you know, I spent more time on that than any other film thing that I'd done. And there's a lot of my own personality ended up being injected into that character of, uh, you know, Jack Skellington. And yeah, of course, but, you know, certainly, you know, I go back and I listen to, uh, I just did Elfman Burton's show, this live symphonic symphony show that uh just last week in uh, palo alto and i was listening to bits of beetlejuice and you know edward scissorhands and and batman and going you know there's things i love in all these scores but, but even then later you know getting into spider-man and getting into uh to die for with gus van zandt and goodwill hunting and um just a lot of moments in a lot of films that are kind of mean a lot to me do you ever sleep? How do you do it? How do you juggle all these things? Does your mind ever get frazzled by it? Or is that the way your brain works? I mean, just help us understand all of well, that. Well, I mean, my brain is a jumbled mess all the time, you know? So <laughs> it, when I was coming up for a title for my new album, it was real easy to choose big mess because so much of this album was me. And I go, what? words describe me best <laughs> and big mess did it um the only time i get really frustrated is when i'm doing the same thing too much mm. i get really frustrated so for 10 years between 85 and 95 i was with oingo boingo and scoring films and whichever yeah. one i was doing i longed to do the other one if i was on the road with oingo boingo i was like oh it's driving me crazy i really wanted to get back to writing a film score i could do new music every day I'm in the middle of a film score, which is like climbing Everest half the time. And I go, oh, God, I want to get back on stage and sweat in a band. And so whatever I'm doing, I want to do something else. And I'm happiest when I could go to extremes, like really ping pong around. Um, I'm most frustrated if I do too many film scores in a row or if it was just Oingo Boingo. It started driving me crazy. I need to, like, keep moving because it's a real... You know, I, I really do feel honestly like I have several competing elements inside of my head, always fighting for kind of their chance. And uh, one of them likes to do stuff that's heavier, one that likes to do something that's more soulful. And the other one likes to be very absurd and crazy. And, and, um, and they're always at each other's throats. They don't like each other, but I've got to manage them both. So I just finally learned that I do best when I have like, lots of different areas I could move into that are really, and, and as much diametrically opposed to each other as possible, as much op opposite. So I definitely got my wish this year with uh, <laughs> two film scores, three world premiere classical works, two concertos and a symphonic work, and uh, the continuation of Big Mess and Coachella. 
all happening at the same time. I mean, that was heaven for me and insane, but heaven. I mean, I literally went from a the Vienna Symphony Orchestra playing a cello concerto uh, for a world premiere to Coachella, a rock stage, to the next night going to uh, Orange County where a concerto for percussion and orchestra was having its second performance. And I was directly off the stage of Coachella. My, my hair is still all messy. <laughs> Didn't even have time to clean myself up. Went right into rehearsal for that. But in a way, I, I love that. Do you ever stop yourself and go, how do I do all this? Like, uh, uh, like Danny, seriously, all these things, you're going jumping from one thing. It's not like you take these discrete projects and separate them out they're all kind of happening at the same time. So your mindset changes because you think differently for this versus something like that. But it, it, does it ever overwhelm you or do you not get overwhelmed by? Well, I mean, all? I get exhausted. I don't get, oh yeah, I do get overwhelmed. I mean, there are, there are moments where it's like the deadlines are on top of each other and it looks impossible. Uh -huh. uh, that inevitably happens. But uh, generally speaking, it's trying to placate these different, elements in my head that need to be satisfied or they're going to punish me. So it's just kind of what I need to do. Do you have a special trick that when you are blocked, uh, you have a mental block or a writer's block for lack, lack of a better word, something that's helped you break out of that? Oh, absolutely. That's real simple. I always have writer block when I'm starting a project. And the thing that always breaks me out is this thing called deadline. <laughs> Without really? the deadline, I'd still be working on Pee Wee's Big Adventure if it didn't yeah. finish and have a deadline, you know, trying to get it right, still trying to get it right. I'd never finish anything ever if I didn't have deadlines. So I live by deadlines. And that's another great lesson for everybody out there, because especially for artists, the, the want, the hope for their perfection in their vision, but it also meets the reality of a deadline and things like that. And then your next project. Yeah. Everything has deadlines. You know, my Oingo Boingo albums all had deadlines when an album was due. Every film score, of yeah. course, has a deadline. The classical works have a deadline. There's a premiere a year in advance scheduled for Paris or Los Angeles or New York or someplace or Vienna. And I know when I have to deliver the music, it's, it's a deadline. And yeah. the only thing I've done in the last 35 years that didn't have a deadline was the big mess. And I started out just to write a few songs during, you know, pandemic, 18 songs later, it's like my manager, Laura and I, we were talking, we said, I'll never stop. I said, okay, we're right. making a deadline. The end of August, that's your deadline. You just have to make it. That is it. It's due. And if you're late, you're screwed. It's a great lesson though. It's great to understand that process, but we're going to take another quick break and come back. We'll be okay. back with Danny Elfman great. in just a few moments. Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska name three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network. So today's Halloween, Dead Man's Party from your album 1986, 
Do you remember writing that song and how it came to you? Yeah, it was actually really simple. Um, my eldest daughter, Lola, I lived in Topanga Canyon in Los Angeles and I had all these steps down to my studio and she was little. She wandered down the steps and came in the studio. And she was asking me, looking at all my studio gear and go, how does this work? How does this work? And then she, I had a little drum machine. It was like a brand new thing with some of my own sounds in this drum machine, which at that time was a big deal to get your own custom sounds in this DMX drum machine. And she yeah. says, how does it work? So I said, well, I just start a click going and then I go, here's a rhythm. You know, just showing. And she laughed and I had this kind of thing that I, and I said, you know, that's kind of not bad. <laughs> and it was the whole rhythm to a dead man's party. So after she left, I just put the guitar on to the rhythm track that I just made for her as a, you know, just an example. And that, was Dead Man's Party right there. So it just flowed out of you. And then the lyrics, how did that come to you? And it, it because obviously you are known for many things, but the holidays and Halloween and nightmares and Christmas and you know all of this. So there was this, this kind of, this sort of theme of skulls and such. Look, that's always been like kind of a part of my life. And, you know, I used to go to the Day of the Dead uh, in Mexico whenever I could and, you know, to catch bits of that. And so, and, you know, that's my whole life. Uh, you know, I'm surrounded yeah. by skulls and skeletons and, you know, as long as I could remember, it was just a natural thing. And, you know, with all songs, you kind of get a rid of a bit of a melody, you're playing guitar and there's a lyric and you don't know what it means. So I think at that point it was don't run away. It's only me, you know, but I didn't know what that connected to. And then I, you know, got, it's a dead man party. It's just started. I go, okay, oh, it's a party. It's a dead man's party. All right. And uh, you start with these little fragments of lyrics. Uh, at least I do when I'm writing a song. I start with just a frag, sometimes a word or a phrase. And then that sets, okay, so I think it's about this. And then I just kind of keep going. And it just kind of came together like that. One of the lyrics is, um, of course, I hear the chauffeur coming to my door says there's room for maybe just one more. And I read something that it's a reference to a, a 1906 short story called The Bus Conductor. Well, no, I don't know that it's not similar to that, but that that isn't something that I was inspired by. I mean, I was okay. just thinking of death coming to get me, you know, dead man's party and yeah. uh, shiny silver dollar on either eye. You know, that's reference to like St. James Infirmary, Cab Calloway song, you know. Um, and, uh, here the chauffeur coming to my door says there's room for maybe just one more. It's like the coach coming to take you away. It's, it's yeah. just kind of, to me, that kind of classic, uh, kind of imagery of, of that motif, that model. And how does it feel that this song now, 40 years later is such an iconic song? <laughs> Uh, you know, it just, everything surprises me. If anything I do is popular in any way, it surprises me because, you know, I'm not a pop writer. I don't like pop music. I never have. So I never considered myself like commercial. And I always considered myself like some kind of weird twisted thing, you know, Oingo Boingo was very difficult to market because we, what were we? It's like yeah. we weren't a pop band. We weren't a punk band. They used to try calling us new wave, but we weren't a new wave band. 
And, um, you know, we just, we weren't any of those things. I don't know what we were. We were like this weird kind of off-center thing. We were a thing. And I felt like that with everything I do my whole life. When I got into film music, I felt the same way. It was like, I, you know, I don't really listen to or the very commercial scores. I just know what I kind of love from the past. And I try to filter that through my sensibility and bring it into the orchestra. But um, I've still always seen myself as like a, some kind of offshoot, you know, so, something kind of deviant from the center. And so if anything I do ever becomes popular, it's like, really? You're kidding. Okay, cool. <laughs> So the second song that, and you chose this song to discuss, Sorry, from Big Mess. Um, and that is very different, obviously, than Dead Man's Party. Yeah. It's a raging song. And so tell us about that, where that came from. And do you remember how that came to be? Yeah, that, that had a whole interesting journey because I started it uh, a year or so earlier as a conceptual piece. I had an idea for like what if you put like a, a rock band or a punk band with an orchestra with a chamber orchestra and i had the sound in my head so um originally i was trying to go out to a festival in tasmania called dark mofo and i had this demo <laughs> for an instrumental piece called i'm so sorry and i wasn't singing on it i was just playing guitar and it was written for nine women's voices a chamber orchestra and a rock band and and they were like, oh, yeah, let's do this. But unfortunately, I didn't have time to put together a whole set around that. Because, you know, when you're doing a commission for a classical piece, you can come up with one piece and it plays with other classical pieces. But for a show and something like this, you need to have like an hour, an hour and a half. And I didn't have time to put together. So when Coachella came about, it's like, OK, I do have this kernel of an idea for a song. And um, it was like my manager took me out there. She'd been trying to get me out there for 12, 13 years to Coachella because they kept wanting to do something. And then I had this mm -hmm. idea of like, what if I do a crazy mishmash show of past old stuff, new stuff like this, sorry, I'm so sorry, and film stuff in a way that makes no sense at all. And I pitched it to Paul Tallette, the promoter, and he was yeah. like, yeah, okay, let's do it. I didn't know what I was going to do, but uh, when we went down, uh, the first thing I did was like, okay, I'm going to turn this I'm so sorry into a song. And I started putting a vocal to it. And that's what triggered all a big mess. So that became the template for big mess. Because first off, I realized I was so filled with venom in 2020 that I just had all this rage inside of me. And I said, I need to let this out somehow. So my whole year of performances, 2020 canceled, of course. And I'm like, what am I going to do with myself? So was the rage just pandemic related or was it? No, I mean, the pandemic enhanced what was there. It was, it was my disbelief at being in America that looked like it was out of a George Orwell novel. It was like my worst. I'd always predicted this kind of in my songs, like this kind of dystopian future, but I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. And I felt like in 2020, I'm seeing it. We're actually marching into this weird authoritarian dystopian 
insanity where two plus two equals five, which is the premise of 1984. Uh, George mm -hmm. Orwell is like, you know, they're brainwashing. It's like reality is what we say it is. And if we say two plus two equals five, it does. And that's what yeah. 2020 felt like. It's like, all right, two plus two obviously equals five to a lot of people. And, yeah. and I was really frustrated. And also for the first time in my life, thinking the possibility that maybe I have to leave the country. And, uh, and that was hard after living my whole life in the, in the U.S. and, love, and loving, you know, Southern California, my family here. I go, where can I go? If, if this continues down this path of this becoming kind of this weird kind of, I, I, you know, it felt like we were becoming Putin's Russia slowly by degrees. It's called democracy, but there's no democracy. And, you know, if you're, if you present a dissonant view, you're punished severely. And that's what I was seeing. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was angry and uh, that just had to come out. And then once the Pandora's box opened, I couldn't shut it. Then all kinds of stuff was coming out. And then I started writing about myself. I started writing about aging and dying and, you know, the things that I think about all the time and personal stuff. And it just all just started rolling out of me as well as the stupid this... stuff, because I still got this crazy writer writing, write something really stupid and fast. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. that yeah. had to happen too. I'm just gonna say some of the lyrics because it will help define, uh, many of you know them, but like one of the, um, uh, some of the lyrics are, I can't breathe while you're alive. I can't breathe while you're alive. You suffocate, you suffocate. And I'm so sorry that I didn't die or just evaporate into a toxic cloud. Um, it's, it's wild. And it's just um, the way that you describe your artistry and uh, that it's, it's so the breadth of it and the power of it and goes from comedy to that. It's, it's pretty incredible. So what is a bucket lister thing that you haven't done? that you have this strong urge to do? <laughs> I'd like to create an animated musical, perhaps, or a live action musical from the ground up. Maybe someday an opera. I don't know if that's on my bucket list or not. You know, for classical works, a symphony. I have not, I've done symphonic works and I've done concertos, but I've not done an actual symphony. So that's on the bucket list. I've done three concertos, but I haven't done a piano concerto. So that's on the bucket list. I think an album of really weird music is soon going to happen on the bucket list of like more electronic kind of strange stuff that I don't even know if you call it songs or not, but there'll be some mm. work that I'm kind mm -hmm. of thinking of now. That's just like, okay, I'll just release this myself, you know, make it. So I won't even try to get a record deal for this stuff. <laughs> it's me too out there. <laughs> and, uh, but just be, you know, something yeah. that, put out there into the world and children's songs, dark songs for children. <laughs> hey, look at, look at the, um, the, the classic stories, children's stories. They're all dark. I know fairy tales. That's what you got to love them. The number 11. Yeah. Some people know this, but a lot of people don't know this. So why does that speak to you? Well, I mean, first off, there's the name Elfman. Elf, we don't know where it comes from. Elf means 11 in German. And so I always used to joke when I was a kid that my ancestor was the 11th man, meaning like uh, in Jewish culture, you can't start a ceremony without 10. 
And my ancestor was the one who was always late. <laughs> he was the guy who came and said, I'm here. And they go, yeah, yeah, sit down. We don't need you. That was where Elfman comes from in my version. Uh, yeah. And then uh, little things like as pointed out to me, Oingo Boingo had 11 letters. Um, Danny mm. Elfman had 11 letters. Uh, and when I finished my violin concerto, Sandy Cameron, my violinist, she said, let's count up the number of bars. Wouldn't it be funny if it was 1100 and something measures? That would be amazing with knowing you because I didn't, I had no idea how long it was. And uh, we took the four movements. We had our calculators out. We tabulated, tabulated. And to my amazement, it was 1111 measures long. Exactly. Come on. That, I swear that's to God, crazy. that's true. It is crazy. And that's why I called that concerto is called 1111. So if you wow. want to find it, you just go Danny Elfman 1111. And that's my first, uh, my violin concerto. What is one thing or several things that would surprise people about you? Maybe something that would surprise people is that I've had a lifelong stage fright that I've never gotten over. And that's why when I stopped performing in 95, I didn't miss it because I had so much anxiety stepping out on stage. And um, mm -hmm. I was just reading, I'm trying to think of the name of the actor, a British stage actor who was describing also a lifelong career of stage acting, but a lifelong stage fright and sometimes blacking out on his lines on stage, but still, you know, an amazing actor. And, but I understood mm -hmm. that so well, that feeling of going out there and fighting this desire to run and hide the other direction. So, uh, you know, I mean, people think I love being on stage and I do when I'm out there and I'm in the middle of it, I do love it. But getting myself out there is a real bitch. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that might, that might surprise people that always when I'm about to step out on stage, there's a big part of me that wants to run the other direction and lock himself in a room and not come out. If you didn't become a, a musician, if life didn't take you that route or you took that route, where, what do you think um, you, could be, you would be doing today? Serving time. <laughs> come on. I had no other talents. Um, you know, I, I, I just don't really doubt that if I never could make it as a musician, I probably would have become a criminal or something. I don't know. You know, I waited tables for the first 10 years of my adult life, you know, while I was yeah. rehearsing and playing and trying to get better. And I've never held a day job in my life. You know, the only other job I've ever had was a waiter or bus boy or, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I have no other abilities. And uh, so I don't know what I could have become. You know, I never developed that backup. My parents always went, Danny, don't you think it's smart to have a backup <laughs> just in case yeah. things don't work out? And my only backup was just spending my life waiting tables. And, uh, and I was a shitty waiter, too. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> even a good one. I was the kind of waiter that messed up orders all the time and was just constantly apologizing and getting shitty tips that I deserved. So your parents, when we started talking, you were telling them they're both school teachers and they were saying, okay, one year in Africa, that's okay. That's great. Then college, college, college. Yeah. And you said, okay, yeah, that's what I'll do. Sure. But when you didn't do that and you, you evolved and your career did what it did, how did they feel about everything? You know, they were very, it was very weird. They were always trying to be supportive 
but I could feel the horror, <laughs> the horror in their faces, you know, like they're trying to be supportive of their son who's breathing fire and playing trombone on the streets. You know, it's like hard. And I'm really glad my father did live long enough to see me headline the Universal Amphitheater with Oingo Boingo. Yeah. In front of 6,000 people. How special. Yeah, it was really special. So they did finally get to see, wow, and we can't believe what you did actually worked. <laughs> and, and they were really proud of me. But I know how horrible the horrors that they had in their mind until that point. But they never gave me a hard time. They tried to be supportive, but I could feel their sense of, oh, my God, our son is just doomed to uh, a miserable life of continual failure. And it could well, have been that I, way. Yeah. Uh, but look at what happened. And we're so thankful. Everybody's so thankful because of it. And so, Danny, thank you so much. Thank you. For um, being my guest here on Story Behind the Song. Um, love everything that you've done. Thank the you. The show at the Hollywood Bowl. Um, we're, we're recording this before the show. And I can't wait to see that show. It but my hard. kids loved the Coachella show. They were blown away and everybody's still tired. Oh, we can't wait to see it. Wish me luck. Coachella plus 45 minutes. That's, in, that's incredible. Thanks for being part of Story Thank Behind you. the Song. We can't wait to see what else <laughs> comes out of that mind of yours. Thank you. And this, you know, and the fact that it's such a great lesson though, too, that you don't put any controls on or limits on where you can go. And I think a lot of times artists feel that, okay, this is where, I'm, this is my lane. Nothing, nothing makes me happier than to burst my way into a party that I wasn't invited and I don't belong. <laughs> That's what makes me happiest, going into something new that I know nothing about yeah. with a, 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 a group of people that don't want me there. It's like, yeah, yeah. that's what I want. Classic. Danny, thank you. Thanks. Great talking to you. That was Mr. Halloween himself, Danny Elfman, sharing his story behind Oingo Boingo's classic 80s song, Dead Man's Party. Catch me next time on November 21st for my interview with legendary fist pumper Billy Idol and the surprising story behind White Wedding, just in time for your Thanksgiving dinner. I'm your host, Peter Chotty. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotty. That's C-S like Sam, A-T-H like Harry, Y like yellow, and at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song.